Welcome to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly in Southeast Spain. We are here for the purpose of worshipping God and reaching others with love. We pray that as you listen, you will be inspired and challenged in your walk with God. Good morning, everyone. Morning, everybody. Great to be here. Now, if you turn your Bibles to John chapter 20, what chapter 20? John chapter 20. The Bible right reading I gave you before was about the resurrection, obviously. And this is, I'm going to focus on one character today. John chapter 20 and verse 24. John 20 verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called a twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciple told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the hands and, mar- and, hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, Disciples were inside, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, and Jesus Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see, see my hands. And put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not not seen and yet believe. And Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in in this book. I wish they were. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. What a day that was. What an absolute day that was. You know, I read a, a story not so long ago, an amusing story. And I said this is about an American pastor. And, um, well, he, he's having a vacation. He went all the way to Florida for a holiday. And his wife was going to follow two days after. And he sent an email on his laptop, what he thought to his wife, but he pressed the wrong button on the keyboard, which we've all done, and it went to everybody on his mailing list. And unfortunately, he went to the minister, uh, the wife of a, a Baptist minister who died only two days before. When she opened the email, she nearly fell off the chair, and this is what it said. Arrived safely. Looking forward to seeing you in two days' time. (laughs) By the way, it's really hot down here. (laughs) Be careful what you send, I would say. Be careful what you send. We're looking at a man who we've all known and um, a man called Thomas, a pessimist who became convinced. 
maybe we've all got this on us to a degree, is often referred to as doubting Thomas. We've all said this. And, and I believe this is unfair, you know, because the, the label placed upon this loving man was not quite right. He was a loving man, a sensitive man, maybe more sensitive and loving than all the other disciples. He's a man, this man, if you got to know him, was a man who passionately loved his savior. This man was a man of God, but never got the credit for it. He's a man that had natural fears, which some of us have fear. We all know fear. 365 times in the Bible, the Lord says, do not fear. One for every day of the week. Because we all know it to a larger or lesser degree. This man was a man that had fears and battles inside. The greatest battles you have in life are not with your health, although they're important. They're not with family members or friends or even people in church. The biggest battles you will have in life are the battles within your heart and your mind. It's the inner battles that are bigger battles in life. And he had these inner battles because he loved his Lord. He's a man very much, I believe, underrated, misunderstood. And out of all the apostles of such a loving, sensitive man, he was a natural worrier. You might be a natural worrier. I don't know. Some people are really laid back and not like that. And some people are natural worriers. And there's a whole scale, isn't it, of these type of people. He'd be more... He'd be more than a frustration to those who are the eternal optimists. He was always the glass, empty man, half empty man. Whilst he would look at the people who say, the glass is half full and say, you're naive. You haven't got a clue what's going on around you. Now you might be able to help me here. Let's look at a little bit of psychology. If you look in psychology, there's, a, there's such a thing called the Chisholm effect. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Chisholm effect. And it's a law of frustration, mishap, mishap, and delay. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example. You may be able to fill in the spaces here. Here's the first law of the Chisholm effect. It says this. If anything can go wrong, it... You're there. When things are going well, something will go... You're there. Last one here. No matter how long, how many times you explain it to everybody in the church, somebody will always misunderstand, not listen. That's what goes on. It's a law of chisholm. So therefore, you've just earned your, your, your BA in psychology. Well done. You've graduated. I would say, if I looked at this man today, I would say this man, Thomas, He's a pessimist rather than one who had serious doubts to the point these doubts could be sinful. Maybe out of all the, the, the apostolic band, he was the grumpy old man. He was the grumpy young man, the Victor Meldrew of the, of the, of the, of the apostolic band. One who would have to see things, one who had to be convinced, one who wouldn't listen to anybody unless he was convinced, no matter who it was. And his fears inside his heart, following Christ, 
Christ pushing him sometimes to places he didn't want to go. And the Lord has a habit of doing that. He pushes us into places and occasions and instances in life where we don't want to go. So we have a natural reluctance to say, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. He says, but you've got to do this. You'll never get any peace until you do this. Well, look at John chapter 11. This is a, a man here. John chapter 11. The context is Jesus in the process of leaving Jerusalem. The metropolitan elite, the Pharisees, well, they've already decided about nearly three years ago they're going to kill him. He challenged their hypocrisy. He challenged their norms. He challenged their traditions. He challenged their 633 pharisaical rules that put people in bondage. He challenged everything. He was completely antithetical to Jewish society, which was steeped in superstition, corruption, and jobs for the boys. Here in John 11, we see an instance. If you just look at John 10, if you have a Bible, please turn to John 10. I give you the background, it's important here. John 10. John 10, 39 and 40. Jesus is in Jerusalem. People are plotting to kill him. He knows this is not quite his time. And so he leaves and he goes to a, a place of safety. He goes to a place where he'll be accepted. And this is what it reads here. And they, the Pharisees and the temple guards, sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went again across the Jordan to a place where John, that's John the Baptist, Baptist had been baptizing at first, and, he, and there he remained. And many came to him and said, John did, not, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. Praise God for this one. That's the background. So Jesus is escaping to a safe place. And at that point, when he's in a safe place, not long before he was executed, even at that point, he was under great pressure. Men are after him. The authorities are after him. And at that point, even at that point, people are saved. Amazing thing. Can I ask you a question? Can I ask you a question? Are you saved? I'm not saying, are you religious? Have you honestly and on heart been converted? Are you, are you born again? If you are, welcome. If you're not, if you're unsure, seek Rafa out today. Ask him, how do I get to heaven? It's the most important thing in your life. We go to John 11 and we have a family occasion, a sad occasion. Every family goes to this occasion, folks. It's a death, an untimely death of a young man. He had two sisters, Martha and Mary. We don't know what he was dying of, but he was dying. I like all of us, when we go through trials and life really kicks us, very often, what do we do? We go to God. We go to God. And sometimes he allows those things to happen to you and me because he wants to bring us back to him. 
It's an act of grace and mercy, but it's painful at the time. Here's two ladies and their brother is dying. What do they do? They send to Jesus, the close friends of Jesus. Maybe best friends, who knows? But the best friends of him. And what do they do? They've seen him heal people. They, they know he has this great power. They know at the very least he's a prophet. They know he's from God. So they send for him. Lord, come and help me. Help us. Don't let him die. Heal him. I wonder how many of us have said that over our loved ones at times. Don't let this happen. Just, Lord, if you love us, don't let this happen. Well, we know Jesus delayed. But delay is not necessarily denial, but sometimes you have to wait some time. And he seems to ignore their desperate pleas. Where's the compassion in this, they were saying. Where is he at the time that I need him? In verse 8 of John chapter, John, John chapter 11, verse 8, John chapter 11, and we're on verse 8, disciples get a bit worried as the stress levels go up because all of a sudden, he's thinking about going to Lazarus. Where is Lazarus? He's two miles outside of Jerusalem, the place where everybody wants to kill Jesus and probably stone them with the rest, his rest of the, of the disciples. It's the danger spot. And all of a sudden, Jesus has gone away, and therefore, it doesn't make any sense that God is saying, let's go back. Let's go back. I love the Lord for this. The Lord knew he was going back into danger, and he did it just for one of his lambs. He just did it for one. He forgot about himself completely and just did it for the one. And my friend, he did it for you and me. He came after us. He's a good shepherd that leaves in 99. He came after us. The disciples are getting a bit worried here. What's going on, Lord? Why are you going back there? This is, doesn't make sense to me on any level whatsoever. They said, Rabbi, the Jews are now seeking to stone you, and they're going, they're going to be there. What are you doing? In verse 11 and 12, look what happens. Fear and understandable apprehension. I don't know whether you've been really scared in life. I've been scared in life. We know what that is. Butterflies, you want to run, fight or run, isn't it? Fight or flight. Here, apprehension it. Disciples fail to listen to good advice. And the disciples trying to dissuade Jesus, don't go back there, Lord. He's only sleeping. Why are you going back? He was actually already dead at this point. And look at verse 16, if you've got a Bible, it says this. So Thomas, called a twin, said to his fellow disciples, oh, let's go back that we may all die with him. You can hear it in his voice, can't you? Oh, a classic pessimist. Okay, let's go to Bethany. The place, the worst place we can be. And he wants to take us back into danger. Oh, let's all die with him. You can hear the sarcasm and the cynicism in his voice. Now, someone once said this. A pessimist can hardly wait for the future so we can, so we can look back with regret. How true that is. And this pessimism is of a heroic nature, if I look at this man. He was willing to go back to what he thought was his actual death if it meant following the Lord. 
I have to admire the courage of this man. And he's moaning beneath his breath. He's complaining and whining beneath his breath every step of the way. But he's doing it. He's doing it. And sometimes we have a great reluctance to follow God. And maybe we might whine and complain beneath our breath. But the fact is, there's credit in just doing it against what you think inside or feel inside. Facing that fear. And you know, it's not easy being a pessimist. Ask a pessimist. You struggle with those eternal optimists. And eternal optimists, no matter what happens in life, they have this annoying habit of quoting Romans 8.28. All things work together for good. Those who love God and those who call the corners. Yeah, they know that. So we know that. We've done that. We've worn that t-shirt. But when you're in a trial, you don't hear that. And the best thing you can do for anybody going through a trial is not necessarily quote the Bible at them. Please, please just listen to them. You don't have to say anything. Just listen to them. And this pessimism, well, it's there for all to see. He was saying, well, I'm going to die no matter what. And these cranks, these other disciples, they're following them. They don't have any problems, but they don't realize the situation we're in. This is a really bad situation. And Thomas had the, the courage to lay aside all his natural pessimism for one reason. And this is the only reason why he did it. Because he loved somebody more than himself. And it takes faith for that. He loved somebody more than himself. And that's the man that was walking in front of him. He loved this man. He loved the Savior. Despite his inner battles, despite going from to and fro in his mind. And this is real courage, you know. Real courage is, is not without fear. Real courage is working through that fear. Those of you who've had operations, you know what it's like just before you put, go and take down to your theater. You know that feeling. Am I going to wake up here? Is this going to go okay? But you, you go through it despite your anxiety, your pessimism, or your fears, or your worries. And the Christian is like this. Thomas was like this. He's able to forget self-preservation because he loved Christ more. Now, you might start to see Thomas has a love for Christ, which was the equal, at least, of all the others. But he, the others were more extrovert about their faith and following Christ, and therefore more, more obvious. And all he knew is this. It's better to die with Christ than to live without him. And you know, and sometimes that, that's what it comes down to. It's better to die with him than to live without him. I don't know about you. I've been a Christian 52 years now. Long time. Long time. And uh, I, I can't remember really a time without him. Although sometimes the relationship has been quite strained and tenuous, if I'm honest, in my life. And that's not down to him, that's been down to me. But as I've got older, let me say this. I'd rather go today and throw any life further ahead of me than live one moment without him. I can't live without him. And a true Christian can live without anything else in life 
but you can't live without him. That's what says wrong. Jesus had no illusion, and these men had no illusion about what following Christ would be. In Luke 9.23, Luke 9.23, Jesus says this, if anyone desires to come after me, look at this, let him deny himself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Outside every Jewish city, you would see children as young as five, older men, women, hanging naked on crucifixes. The Romans were ruthless. They made an example outside every city of though you cross Rome, this is what happens to him. When Jesus says, take up your cross, immediately every Jew would say, that's not the best way to go. This is a place, this, this really is given everything and more. But he says, deny me, deny yourself. Now this is not denial. Okay then, I'll grump about it and I, okay, I won't do this Lord. I'll, I'll deny myself here. No, this is just the opposite. This is denial, denying yourself with joy. With joy. With joy, it, it's a desire for him. I, I know this. If I were to give my wife, or maybe, gentlemen, you give your wife flowers now and again. All the men look down at this point. And if you feel anything in your side, it's your wife saying, listen to this, listen to this. I'm not looking at my wife here. She's over there somewhere. I'm not looking. But if you, you, you do this as being good husbands. But if you go on the doorstep and you knock on the door and you say, sweetheart, here's the flowers. The worst thing you can say is the pastor told me to do this. <laughs> That's a bad thing. You don't do this. It doesn't go down, chaps. It's not a good time. And if I did that, I know I'd be picking the flowers out of my face for quite some time afterwards. I know that you would as well. But if you go there and say, you know what? Here's a bunch of flowers. Uh, thank you for marrying me. I love you. Thank you for giving your life to marry the likes of me. You know what? Gentlemen, I promise you, that'll be a good day. <laughs> that'll be a great day. Why? Because the, the desire comes from you out of joy, having her as your wife. The same with the Savior. Self-denial means nothing to me if you do it reluctantly. But if you say, no matter what, Lord, I do it because I love you. That's what God accepts. That's your reasonable gift. That's the sweet aroma going up to heaven. That's what it's all about. This is what Thomas was learning. He was, he was like this. He was like all this. So we learn something of Thomas's personality. A man, maybe less extrovert than the others, a natural pessimist, cautious, reluctant, and yet overcome this, and step by step followed his Lord, even into danger, maybe giving up his life, because he loved Christ more than he loved himself. He couldn't do the dirty on him like Thomas could. And then finally, let me finish with this. John 14. Turn your Bibles to John 14. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a very tender passage to me. Maybe it is to you. Uh, I remember when my, my old dad was dying 20 odd years ago and I was lying on the bed with him. 
And I said, Dad, listen to this. Listen to this. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, says the Lord. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it not and so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself. And where I am, you may be also. And you know the way and where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you'd known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. What words are they? Jesus is in the upper room, as you know, John chapter 1 to 13 is three years, covers three years. John 14 to 17 is just one evening in the upper room. And Jesus is under great pressure himself. He knows within an hour and a half, two hours, he's going to be arrested by about a thousand men. He knows all the disciples are going to run for it. He knows one has already at that point already betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. He knows all this. He's looking at these men who are just working class losers. But these men, by God's grace and power, changed the world. And he's saying, no matter what, your place in heaven does not depend on anything with you. It all depends upon my commitment and my grace towards you. That's the issue. It's not us holding his hand. It's him holding our hand is the issue. The passage shows just a little bit further the profound love Thomas had for the Lord. The three main characters here, there's Thomas, Philip, and the Lord Jesus. Yes, you are, Jesus. But we're just going to contact, focus our attention on Thomas and Jesus. The context is that Jesus was about to be betrayed, as I've said. Thomas was a man that was no good at goodbyes. I think most of us are not good at goodbyes. Over the last 45 years of working with people, I've seen many people die. Many people die. And I can say this, there are some occasions when maybe the wife or the husband, they just can't be in the room when their loved one passes. Now this is not, not necessarily because, as a young pastor, I used to be puzzled by this, thinking they've got to be there. You know, the husband or the wife really needs them. But just comes to a point when they, they just find this goodbye unbearable. And then they, they don't go in another room necessarily because they're cowards. I've never found that. They can't be there because they love the husband or wife or child so much. It's unbearable to see them like this. Some people like this. Some people who will lose somebody, they'll go to the grave every day and then it eases off a bit. And some people say, right, he's gone, she's gone. They're with the Lord now. (laughs) That's it. And they never go to a grave again. We're all different. There's no right or wrong way on this one. 
Thomas was the one who would go every day if he could. Thomas was the one who'd be in the other room saying, I can't be there. I know why I know that. Because at the cross, he couldn't be there. Seeing his saviour impaled like this, seeing his saviour whipped nearly to death. He couldn't bear it. It was too much for him because he loved the Lord so much. In verse 5, Jesus speaks up again to this, and we see an honest pessimism. And in essence, he's saying, Lord, it would have been better if we'd all died in John 11 than to leave us now in this place where we don't know where you're going. This is unbearable, Lord. I can't live without you. Thomas didn't, just didn't want to be separated from this man. I think it's worth noting that, you know what, all Thomas's fears came true that night. His greatest fear was losing this man who is absolutely unique, this God-man. That was his greatest fear. I can't live without this man. He lost him that night. He had to leave them behind. And Thomas, his natural pessimism proved, well, all my doubts and fears, all my pessimism has proved right. I knew he would go. I knew it would turn belly up. I knew it would end up in tears. It's all ended up in tears, hasn't it? Look, everybody. This is what it was like. It's worth noting that this really happened. And then we move very quickly, finally, to John chapter 20. Just a few moments on this. And we come to the final picture here. But in the upper room, the windows and doors are closed. And all of a sudden, the Lord appears. Thomas is brokenhearted. This is the bleakest time of his life. And then all of a sudden, he comes back after a walkabout. Over a week, a walkabout. We don't know where he was. And then the Lord appears, first of all, to the remaining ten before Thomas gets back while he's on this walkabout. And he, he always comes, if you, don't, if you notice this, this is the beauty of Christ. When he comes, he says, peace to you. Don't forget, he was Jewish. Shalom. Peace to you. You know what? I know this. Whenever Jesus Christ has been in my life and I trust him, no matter how big the storm is, he calms it. He calms the storm. Peace to you. In other words, don't worry now. And the closer the Savior is to you, the less you will worry and have doubts. The furthest, further away is, when anything happens to you in life, all of a sudden you're like Thomas. We're all like this. Jesus appears to the ten and says, peace to you. He calms them, assures them. And I've been thinking, well, what was the reason that this broken-hearted pessimist, this depressed man, why wasn't he there? Maybe three reasons, maybe you can think more. Maybe the first one's this. Could he have been so depressed and broken-hearted that he just needed space? I just need to get out of here. I can't take this anymore. Could it have been that? His worst fear had been realized. Jesus is gone. Maybe secondly, could he have been blaming himself, being a coward? The time when he needed me, the time when he looked at me, 
I ran away into the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Oh, what a coward I am. What a wimp as a man I am. All he'd ever done is love me. And all I'd ever done is act selfish, self-absorbed, self-obsessed. And I ran out of self-preservation. What a shame I am. You know, gentlemen, you'd be surprised how many men have said to me in their latter days, I've got these regrets. As a Christian, the greatest regret is, is that they've not prayed more, <laughs> prayed more with the wives, read the Bible more, be more committed to Christ than you were. And I learned this walking away out of the hospitals many, many times. And I've said to my wife, you know what? The only way that we're ever going to leave this life with regrets is that we don't live life with regrets. That's the truth of it. John was like this. Thomas was like this. Oh, I've let him down. Let me tell you the story. In 1904, there's an American called William Borden. And he had, his family owned, they were multimillionaires, even in 1904. And they, they had a, a, a dairy estate called a Borden Dairy Estate in America. In, and this guy graduated from Chicago High School, this William Borden, as a multimillionaire at 21. His parents gave him a trip around the world. He traveled through Asia, Middle East, and Europe. And then he saw all the hurting people, all the unsaved people in the world. And he wrote home this letter, which caused a controversy in the, in the family. He had everything in life. He had a beautiful woman about to be engaged to. He wrote this to his mom and dad. I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. That's all he said. They went, what? Your career is all sorted. He said, I'm giving my life to the mission field. When he made this decision, he wrote, wrote, wrote these two words on the back of his Bible. No reserves for Christ. No reserves for him. Holding nothing back. Turning down a high-paying job after graduation from Yale University, he entered two more words in his Bible. And he said this, no retreats for Christ. Not one step back for Christ. Completing studies at Princeton Seminary, Borden sailed to China to work with Muslims, hoping, and stopping, should I say, in Egypt for, for a month or so. And, uh, but while he was there, he was stricken with cerebral meningitis. There was no antibiotics in those days. It was a death sentence. And he died within that month. He died on, on a quayside. All he had was a bag, a case for his pillow, and someone threw a, a rag over him. That's all he had, and people just used to walk over him as he was dying. You might say, what a waste of a life. Where's God in this? Not in God's plan, you know. In his Bible, when someone eventually found him and returned his body home, his parents saw these words, his last words, scrawled, very faint, and uneven handwriting. He said this, no reserves, no retreats. And then he'd written the day before he died, he went unconscious, no regrets for Christ, no matter what. Amazing man, isn't it? Amazing man. 
Maybe Thomas could have felt alone, rejected, betrayed, that his Lord had walked out on him. And he was certainly in no mood to socialize with people. And that's why he had an eight-day walkabout somewhere where we don't know where. And eventually he turned after this eight-day walkabout. And the disciples were full of joy. They've seen the Lord. They've touched him. And then Thomas, and this is where we get the doubt and Thomas thing in, in verse 25, unless I see, unless I touch. And that's why I think this comment of, of doubting Thomas's title is unfair. You know, the Lord treated him very differently than one history treated him. And none of the other disciples believed. None of the women believed that Jesus Christ would rise from the dead. And yet we labeled Thomas as doubting Thomas when they were all doubters. Just like me and you. And rather than rebuke Thomas, look what the Lord did. The Lord could have said, you know what? You've seen me raise people from the dead. You've seen me feed tens of thousands of people. You've heard words that no man has ever heard before. You've actually been sleeping next to the Son of God. You've heard the authority in my voice. But he didn't. You know what he said? The, the Lord condescended again and said, Here you are, touch me. Touch me. The disciples in the room that would have been absolutely silent. And then, taking his garment to the side, he said, Yeah, just put your fingers in here into the rib cage, and see that I'm real, Thomas. And you know what? Even at that point, Thomas had to be convinced. And he touched the Savior. Imagine this, touching the Son of God's wounds. I guarantee when this was happening, Jesus was smiling assuringly at him. No condemnation, loving this man back. At that point, Thomas fell to his knees, no doubt. And he gives us probably the clearest declaration of the deity of Christ in the New Testament. He cries out as a Jew, and this was blasphemy unless it was true. He said, my Lord and my God. You can hear it in his voice, can't you? An eruption of joy, surrender, peace, as well as shame of what he's done. I love this man for this. You've heard that probably the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, when the Metropolitan Tabernacle, still there today in London and the Elephant and Castle, was built, on a dedication service like you had last week, this is what this stout, small man that didn't look anything, yet that the power of God on him, this man who was suffering from gout, even as a young man, ill health, his wife was put, he got up in a pulpit and as all these thousands of people in the Metropolitan Tabernacle, he said these words, I would propose, my dear friends, that the subject of the ministry of this house of God, as long as this platform shall stand, as long as this house is be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. I'm never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. I do not hesitate to, to take the name of Baptist. But if I am asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus, Jesus, Jesus Christ. The power of that. He goes on to say, my venerated predecessor, Dr. Gill, 
He left a theological heritage. It was a fantastic systematic theology. Admirable and excellent in its way. But the legacy to which I would pin and bind myself forever. God give me strength. Is Jesus Christ. Who is the arm. The substance of of the gospel. Who is himself. All theology. The incarnation of every blessed truth. God help me. I agree with him. As Christians, we live for him. We will die for him. We will stand against overwhelming odds for him. We will not be silenced. We will not give in. We will not retreat on what we believe. We will not be intimidated because they are not sovereign, but he is sovereign. That's the issue that we're fighting today, the truth war. What happened to Thomas? Let me conclude with this. Do you know what happened to him in the end? Well, this introvert, pessimistic, half-glass, empty man, his life was changed that day. When you meet Christ, your life has to be changed. It cannot be the same. You are a new creature. All things pass away. Everything in life becomes new. The old habits have got to die. Because you're still in bondage to them, or you're a slave of Christ. There's your choice. The old habits, or a slave of Christ. Paul calls himself a willing slave of Christ. The devil says, I'll have you in bondage. Christ sets you free. Well, he did. He went to India, he went to Eastern India. And even today in Madras, there's still a massive church. That was founded by him 2,000 years later. So you'd hardly say, out of all the apostles, he's been one of the most successful and blessed because his witness is still alive. How did he die? He was preaching one day to these, these pagans. And someone came beside him and ironically placed a spear deep into his side. He no doubt collapsed on the floor. Ironically, probably the same side you take it, that the Lord was wounded. He went to the floor. I tell you this, I bet if I was there, I would see this man, no doubt in pain on the floor, but looking up and maybe with a smile on his face saying, you know what, I've longed for this day for many years. I've longed to see him face to face again. I've longed, and for me today, No doubt saying to himself, the day of a believer's death is better than the day of his birth. That is Thomas. Let's sing our last hymn to him. Whatever happens to him. Shall I just pray with you? Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, oh, how we love you. And Lord, We love you because you first loved us. Thank you that despite our doubts and fears, despite our anxiety at times, despite when we should follow you and we walk from a distance, oh Lord, despite sometimes we allow things in our life that shouldn't be there because you've set us free from these things, 
Lord, thank you for being patient with us. And Lord, we deny ourselves because we want to please you, because you're the apple of our eye as we're the apple of your eye. Lord, thank you for those who are Christians here for saving our souls. Thank you that you gave us the, the will to repent and to seek you. Thank you that you give us the faith to believe you and to trust you. And if there's any here, Lord, who don't know you, please save them so they can say that their sins are, are, are removed so far as the east is from the west. Lord, for our children and grandchildren, if they're not saved, Lord, wherever they are in the world, bring them across a Christian that will talk to them and tell them of the glorious gospel that sings in their souls, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the ministry of the International Christian Assembly, a ministry of AMG Spain and AMG International. For more information, please visit our website at www.icatorrevieja.org. This audio file is not copyrighted.